Hi, I'm Phil Morehart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. The Coretta Scott King Book Awards, an annual award honoring African-American authors and illustrators of books for children and young adults, celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. To commemorate the occasion, I spoke with five past winners and honorees about the award's history and importance in front of a live audience at the 2019 ALA Annual Conference in Washington, D.C. this past June. Joining me were Jason Reynolds, author of Ghost and As Brave As You, Jacqueline Woodson, author of Brown Girl Dreaming and Miracles Boys, and Angie Thomas, author of The Hate You Give, Christopher Myers, author and illustrator of Black Cat and illustrator of Firebird, and Equa Holmes, illustrator of The Stuff of Stars. This month on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, we're going back to D.C., back to that panel, for those of you who are unable to join us at the annual conference. So sit back and enjoy our talk about the Coretta Scott King Book Awards. Um, now, as mentioned, we're here to talk about the Coretta Scott King Book Awards. Established, I'll give you a little, start with a little background really fast before we start talking. Uh, established in 1969 um, to um, honor books written for children and, and young adult readers uh, by African American authors and illustrators. But they were really started initially by, by Mabel McKissick and Glendon Greer, two school librarians, to, to address a void that there were no awards given for African American authors and illustrators. And um, the, the first book was released in 19, or award in 1970, is Lily Patterson's Martin Luther King Jr., Man of Peace. So I wanted to start with looking back at those 50 years. How, what, what's changed? How has the CSK Awards impacted children's publishing uh, in these past 50 years? Jackie, what do you think? We have a plan Jacqueline Woodson. I'm going to start, but I'm not finishing. So, um, okay, listen, thank you. Thanks. So, can everyone hear me? Um, well, one thing when we just now walking through the convention center, we saw all of these books um, written by. Uh, people of color with characters of color. I think, I think just to backtrack about the CSK Award, uh, it was started to recognize the books that um, were not being recognized by committees like the Newberry mm-hmm. and the Caldecott. So, so it wasn't just saying we're going to give these awards to black people. It was saying these books matter um, and should be recognized by all the committees, but because of racism, some committees are not seeing us. And I think that um, it's really, I, I think that's a really important something to look at. I think the first one to get the Newberry was Mildred Taylor's Roll of Thunder, or was it Virginia Hamilton? Mildred Taylor. Um, someone, someone out there knows. Um, so, so I think um, what the Coretta Scott King Awards did was completely change the narrative. And, and show that there were people writing and they were writing well and they were writing books that needed to be in rooms where kids of color could see themselves. And eventually publishers caught on and um, I think that re- it's the, the change, the big change is very recent. So I'm gonna let others speak to that. 
That was your cue. Get Equa. Holmes. Hello. Good morning. Uh, I was just going to say, 50 years ago, um, I didn't see any books um, uh, featuring children of color. Well, actually, more than that, because I'm 63 now. So when I used to go to the library as a girl, I didn't see any reflections of people like me, girls like me, um, maybe some personality traits, like I loved Madeline and, and Pippi Longstocking and all of that, but there was nothing. And so to come full circle to this time and to have a rich, um, a rich library of sources that I can share with my granddaughter, to me feels like um, we've really done something powerful taking off from the recognition through the Coretta Scott King Awards and those two women who decided that they weren't going to stand around and complain about something, they were actually going to do something about it is um, a message that's always good for us because there are things in all of our lives that need to be handled and we can't keep saying they, they, they. We have to sometimes say we, we, we. And, and so I'm really proud that they did that. And to be here uh, on the 50th anniversary um, is so important and, and I'm really humbled and honored by that to be a part of this and to sit on this podium. You know, I've admired some of you guys. Before I got involved in this world, I was looking at your work, Chris, and Jacqueline reading your books and all of that. So this really feels special to me. Um, I would just say that there are many stories still yet to be told. Um, I met a young girl um, at a workshop that I did in Philadelphia. She has Tourette's syndrome. She's about eight years old and she wants to write a story about a girl like her. And I just, I could encourage her because I can see what happens when you encourage people to follow their dream. That's how we're all sitting here today. Christopher Myers. Um, one of the things that uh, is, it seems to be a very popular notion in the world is the idea that you don't see these other communities. And I think the Coretta Scott King Award really said to people who you are obviously seeing each other. We're obviously being around each other. You can't be, let's say, in D.C. and say, I've just never been around black people. That's, that, is, that is a lie, you know, um, and books, uh, awards like the Credit Scott King Award have proven that lie, have, have said our communities are already there. We are already in each other's faces. We're in each other's worlds. Let us acknowledge that. Let us acknowledge both the ways in which we are already present and also acknowledge the ways in which we have excluded each other from the tables, or rather, y'all have ex excluded us from the tables. Sorry. Um, and, and, and I think that that is one of the, the lessons from the Curtis Scott King Award that I'm also interested in the idea that it has inspired a slew of other awards. And that strategy, I think, is, is, is something else to be, to, for, with which that we should commend the founders of the Curtis Scott King Award. This idea that when you think of the Poor Obel Prey, when you think of all of the other kinds of awards that are saying, hey, we are, we are already in community with each other. Let us acknowledge the fact that we are at the same table. And I, and I think that that's part of the legacy that I haven't heard people talk about so much, is that yeah. all of the other awards that have come from this idea. For me, I think... Uh, <clears throat> Jason Reynolds. You know, I, I, what, I'm, what's, what I'm most fascinated by in terms of the Credit Scott King Awards is that the award itself 
And the inception of the award is in direct tradition uh, and in alignment of all the other sort of experiences and things that we have had to do as black people in America, um, which is basically at some point we have to make a decision to stop to stop groveling for, for your confirmation and for your affirmation and decide to love on ourselves. And so what the Coretta Scott King uh, Award did for me was it said, look, you may not be recognized in, in this category or that category, but we have an obligation and a responsibility to recognize you within the home. And that's okay too, right? And that that is valuable. And when, I, when Jackie won, when Jacqueline, sorry, I'll be sorry, in, in these spaces, when Jacqueline won, the, uh, the uh, National Book Award, I'll never forget this, this moment, because I sit up under them, right? Like we're all in conversation with each other, sort of, you know, through generations, right? And so I, have, I was fortunate to be with Jacqueline the very next day, actually here, right? Uh, uh, not too far from here. And I, we were talking about, um, we were talking about the, the news and how people were asking her certain questions around winning the National Book Award. And people kept saying, how does it feel to, for, because this is the biggest award of your life? And she said, Jason, and I kept looking at them like, says who? Right? <laughs> According to you, this is the biggest award, but why is this award any, uh, any more momentous than the Coretta Scott King Award, right? Which is what she was telling the press, and I think that is something that we all have to keep in mind. Like it isn't, this isn't some throwaway or like a favor. This isn't like a, hey little black boy, hey little black girl, just so you know we love you. It's like, no, you exist in this particular sort of like space in terms of craft, in terms of story, right? And we are going to honor you, bec not because they won't, but because you deserve it and because they won't, you know? <clears throat> Angie Thomas. I mean, what else can I say? After, you know? But I know for me, um, one thing that I can say about black people, we always celebrate ourselves when the world doesn't. And growing up, I, I never expected the mainstream to celebrate the things that I enjoyed. They were always seen in a negative light. For instance, hip hop. Let's look at hip hop culture. Now people love it thanks to Hamilton. But, you know, we were always othered. And so when you have things like the Coretta Scott King Award, when you have the NAACP Award, when you have even the BET Awards or Hip Hop Culture, the Source Awards, we've always found ways to celebrate ourselves. And so to have that in children's literature, for me even growing up seeing that, it was a reminder that there are books out there for me, catered to me, and it's fine to celebrate that amongst ourselves even when the world doesn't. That means for me as a child and what that means for kids now is that you're telling them we will celebrate you even when the world doesn't. So it has an effect beyond just the books themselves. It's telling the kids who read those books that there's a group of people who's looking out for them and who appreciates them as they are and is not expecting them to change or to conform because these books are meant for them so there is a world that is meant for them. I want, to, I want to talk about that a bit more. Um, you mentioned books that you were reading when you were kids. What I, I, I want to know, I think some of our listeners might want to know, what were you reading as kids? What books had um, a big impact on you? And were a lot of them by black authors? Were a lot of them by black authors? Like, what, what books had a great impact on you as a child? I'll get mine out of the way. None, everybody. The answer, I'm sure you know this, the answer is none. <laughs> On, on, on the other side, I read, I read everything, and you know what you talk about legacy and standing in the show. Of course, 
the, the thing that I read every day was my father, Walter D. Myers, did 10 pages a day. And then later on, he did five pages a day. And so I read that every day because you had to give a critique. That was your, that was your job as a, as a child. Everybody worked in the house. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and, and I think that being part of a community of writers, which I think is the other part of what has been such a gift of the Credit Scott King Award is the community of us on the stage. The fact that we will see each other now over and over again. We've, we've all, you know, it, it's, it's rare when we don't know each other. Like, you know, Angie and I hadn't met, although we, we know each other enough, but, you know, and when we finally do meet each other, there's this moment of being like, hey, you're, you're, you're us. And that, that, that's, that's another kind of real gift of the Credit Scott King Awards is this community of writers that we get to be a part of. You know, last night there was a moment when anyone who'd won anything stood up and there was so much pointing across a large, a large room saying, hey, there you are. What's up, man? How you doing? Oh, I thought you fell off. You didn't. You all right. <laughs> you know, and that, that's really beautiful. <laughs> it's so true what? I, I, you thought I fell no, off? No, no, no. You do fall off. I mean, you can't find you. Like in Indonesia, someplace else. Jackie's like, did we talk to him? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, why he won't return my phone call? <laughs> no. It's with love, though. But it's with love. There <laughs> 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 is Chris. Yeah, I, th I think the it's, it's interesting in terms of what we read. Uh, I think part of it is that in spite of, you know, we're here because of what we read and, and because of what we didn't have to read. I think so many of us are writing to fill that hole of the books that weren't there when we were young. Um, I, I was lucky enough to have, as I always talk about, John Steptoe Stevie, which was a transformative book for me. Um, and I was lucky to have um, eventually Mildred, Step, I mean, um, Mildred Taylor's Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, and Zia Lee, Virginia Hamilton, and, um, and The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Like, I skipped right to the adult stuff where I could see mirrors of myself as Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop talks about because it's important to cite black women because yes. black women do not get cited enough in the text. Um, so and then and then there you know there was Sounder and Sounder could have taken me out. <laughs> Yeah, because it was the book that white teachers were always given to me, saying, "Here's a mirror of yourself," yes. and and it was not written by a person of color, and it was um, it was about supposedly a southern black family, and they never hugged each other. Do you remember? Like, it's like, how can they be southern and never hug each? Something's wrong here. And then the only character in the book with the name was the dog. So, like, the messages that a book like that can give a young person who's trying to find themselves in literature, I thought, oh, i got to find an old white man to tell my story to so that he can get it published for me. And, you know, i got to get a dog. Um, <laughs> but but I, I think in thinking about that and thinking about kids having those mirrors and windows is so important to read those books and know what the bigger messages they're, they're giving to young people are. I mean, Mildred Taylor... Roll of Thunder, Cassie was my hero, you know, John Steptoe, Stevie was my hero, and Sounder was not, you know, I liked the dog, I was sorry he died, um, 
but, but that wasn't a book that pointed me in this direction. Or it did point me in this direction because I said, I'm going to fix that. You know, I'm going to fix the fact that this is the book in the room that got the medal so all the teachers feel like it's the book that everybody needs to read. And I'm not saying that that book should be censored. My kids have never read it. But I am saying that, that I, I'm glad that I'm living in a time where we have all of these options. When I was a kid, it's funny you brought up Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, because that was the book for me as a kid. It was because, for one, it was about a black girl in Mississippi, and there I was, a black girl in Mississippi. And I felt seen in a way. So that was the book for me. I read it over and over and over again. Now, the thing is, though, my teachers, my gatekeepers, were not putting enough books in my hands that would show me myself. Not to say that there weren't books out there, because I didn't read your dad's books until I got to college. Because my teachers weren't putting them in my hands as a kid, and I'm like, why is that? So, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry was the book for me, and by the time I became a teenager, I hated reading because, once again, nobody was introducing me to the books that showed me myself. Um, I felt like I wasn't being heard, even. And, and because of that, my narratives, I got the narratives that I needed from hip-hop music. So rappers were telling the stories when books didn't. Um, so it was, it was, for me, I feel like that's what I want to be now for kids. That's why what they were saying rings so true even for me, because that's what I want to do. I want to give those young people who hate reading something that shows them themselves and hooks them to reading. So that's, that's what I strive to do with every single thing that I write, to give young Angie of the past the book that she would have loved if she were still young. I'm not, yeah. But, <laughs> but it's, I think that if nothing else, I hope that that encourages you all as gatekeepers to not let what happened to me happen to these kids now. Because had I not had hip-hop music or had I not eventually got a love for books, I wouldn't be a writer today. But not just that, I wouldn't have had my imagination unlocked. And, and in so many ways, that is so beneficial. So please, gatekeepers, learn from the mistakes of my gatekeepers. Um, Angie, you are still young. <laughs> Enjoy. Um, I think the first book that I read about an African-American girl was one that I wrote myself um, because as I said there weren't books in the libraries but my aunt was a librarian and she taught my cousin and I how to make the binder for the cover and the inside pages and so the first book was a, a story about my best friend Tanya and I remember after putting it together with the drawings and the text and probably terrible printed handwriting, I felt really proud of that, that my story was now in a book. True, it wasn't as polished as the books in the library, but it still had a binder, it had a cardboard cover, it had color, it had a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And my cousin also wrote a book that day. And I think that was a seed that was planted in us as very young, in fact, we're gonna be doing a book together very shortly, um, that was a seed planted many, many, many moons ago, and now it's blossoming. In some of my work with uh, Mass College of Art and Spark the Artmobile, we do writing workshops for kids, poetry workshops, 
where for some kids for the first time they're having someone tell them that their story is important and getting uh, appreciation for their poems and thinking about being writers and poets and illustrators. So I think there are always things that we can do to encourage more and more stories and more and more Angie's and uh, Aqua's and Jason's from the work that we do as librarians, as teachers, those kinds of things. Get those kids understanding that their story is unique, their stories are important, and that they deserve to be heard and appreciated. You know, you know, <clears throat> you know what we never talk about is so many of us, specifically in the black community, so many of us, like if, if you're like me or like Ange who didn't grow up, you know, with sort of books being at the forefront, um, so much of my storytelling and so much of my life as an author comes from like oral tradition in my family, right? Like, and, and, that's, and that is such a, a, a linchpin and a cornerstone of our culture. So many of us grow up listening to our aunties and our uncles and our grandmas we in grown folks business and you listening yes. to them tell their stories right every every holiday we get around everybody get a, get a little loose and they get to talking and you sit at the table listening to your elders uh tell their stories or reminisce about what it was like for them to grow up and even though it seemed so far away you knew you were directly connected to it because the language was your language and the food that you're eating while you're listening to them is your food mm -hmm. and so there's a there's a sort of inter-network that that is happening um and you happen to be a part of it and it almost feels like intrinsically um that element becomes a part, it tethers itself to you. And we don't talk about it often enough because we work in the written word, but there's no way I can work in the written word while also divorcing or my, our oral traditions, right? Everything about my life and everything about my work, and, I, and I'd, I'd be willing to go out on a limb and argue for all of us that everything about our work, so much of it is rooted in our oral traditions, which came far before any of our folks had an opportunity to sit on the stage, and I think we have to figure out ways to continue to bring that up in public spaces. It's so true. So the thing about, I know we've all heard, you know, don't go telling your little friends this. Exactly. And, <laughs> which, of course, made you, your ears perk up and, mm -hmm. and you think, well, there's something, there's so much in here. It's like, it's taboo, it, you know, it's gossip, it's, it's something that I'm not supposed to repeat. So what is it? So I can repeat it at some point. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and this, this idea of a value cue, right? Like, don't go telling your friends is a, is a cue of value. Like, mm -hmm. this is important. You know, my, my, my grandfather didn't read, but would send me out of the room for various stories, whatever it was. He'd like, you got to leave the room now. And I was like, I got to leave the room. That must, and then I, I, I leaned my little ear over, and he told me, he stayed saying that I was going to not die a natural death. I was going to nose on out the world. <laughs> but like, this, this, this is the kind of, I, I really, I like what Jason brings up, this idea of also the intergenerationalness of this all. And I think that that's one of the, the when, or even when Angie talks about, we are all making books for the kids we were. That's, 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 who, that's what we're doing. And that, that, that audience, that sense of, of generational passing on is one of the gifts of, of being part of a tradition that's like 50 years old. I remember uh, I, Effie Lee Morris was a librarian that I loved. She was the first uh, black head of children's services in San Francisco. She was from New York, um, and, and one day I, I took her out to tea because she was 90-something, and you can't help but to win if you take an old black librarian to tea. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
and she said she said to me that she was the head of uh, the deaf and blind library in New York City and then she got the offer to be the head of children's services in San Francisco and it was I think it was Adam Clayton Powell that told her you should do that for wow. the race Wow. And and just that that sensibility of doing something for the race, I, I, it made me want to like any book I made, any book, anything I, I want to do right by us, yeah. Yeah. and that and that that responsibility, that gift that, of carrying on those oral traditions, of of saying from of, of of making the value from the things that have not been valued, all of that is 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 a is a weight we gladly take on. Absolutely. I want to um, talk a little bit about the uh, the awards themselves, as far as uh, the award ceremony and, and, and winning the awards. I know if some of you you've been to the Youth Media Awards. It's it's a crazy morning. There's it's a, there's excitement and energy and screaming at really early hours in the morning. And you and the CSK Awards Committee they call the winners and honor books at like five in the morning and they. And I was wondering, what's, what do you remember about winning your first award or winning your first honor book? Like that experience, what's, what was going through your head? How did it affect you? And, and, and I guess the follow-up would be, like, how did that affect your career? How has winning an award, being associated with the CSK Awards, affected your personal career? Yeah, so for me, so winning the award was a, was a, uh, was a, was a trip. When I, when I was nominated for the Steptoe, actually every single time I've won this award, I never answer the phone, and the CSK committee get they get so upset. And every and I mean every single time I've won, I've never answered the phone. Uh, and then they call back, and it's a whole thing. Or the first time I think, then they call you. They call they call the, they call somebody called the publisher. Like we don't like everybody's sort of looking for me, and I'm like, you know, I don't think I had any service, or my phone was off. I'm sleeping. Like I, you know, I'm just kind of like because you don't really expect. It's 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 a. Uh, it's tormenting to expect, right? So you just kind of got to try to like, hey, whoever wins, go go you, I'm gonna get some sleep, right? Yeah. And so they call up when I finally get in touch with them, this is like hours later, hours later. So my first call was at like 9, 30, 10 o'clock. By the time I got to them, they was like, bro, no, the first year I didn't get the, I talked to you, you texted me, because yes. I, I was in the bed chilling. And Jackie texted me at nine o'clock in the morning, like, uh, uh, like something, you know, some sort of expletive and exclamation mark, right? And, and I'm like, what's up? Good morning, like, you know, what's happening? Are you not watching? Do you remember this? Like, are you not? Are you not? Are you not watching it? Watching what? What are we talking about? And that's and that's how I find. It's funny now looking back on it because we had that. Mo I, I, Jack, Jacqueline Whitson is the person who told me that I won the, the, my first Coretta Scott King, John Steptoe, which means a lot more in this particular moment. Um, and so, and then there's actual ceremony, which I'm sure we'll all talk about, which is, of course is, to me, the greatest part of ALA. I think it is by far the most incredible part of this entire experience. Um, in terms of what it did for my career, for me, I believe uh, that had it not First of all, I want to say this. I was fortunate enough to come into this industry the second time at a time when I felt like I was given time and space to develop. So because my editor and because, and because of my mentors and because of the, the people that I was fortunate to have coming, in, coming back into this industry, I didn't feel any sense of urgency to do anything except for continuing my work. But there was no extra weight on me. Right, so this award for me was like, oh, this is really cool. What I did not know, due to my own, due to sort of 
due to the luxuries that I had been afforded by my editor and by my mentors, what I did not know is that perhaps had I not gotten this award or if I had not continued to work, that perhaps I, would have, I could have slipped through the cracks. Right? And that is always a possibility. Right? Just because you have a friend or two or just because you've written something, there's a lot of good books in the world that none of us know. There are a lot of good books that are published on the shelves that none of us know, right? And so I could have easily sort of gone unnoticed. And, and what that shiny metal did was basically put me a little closer to the front of the store, right? Turn my book face out, put me in the catalogs and the magazines, find me some real estate on the tables, right? These very simple things that really can, can you know, ultimately make a career. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you just said because I'm coming to the game really, really late. Um, had no expectation of, I didn't even think about the awards at all. And so for the, the first award for Voice of Freedom, um, I think I was so sleepy. Somebody called and said, hey, you won an award? And I was like, okay, that's nice. And I just turned over and went back to sleep. And then about 15 minutes later, I got another phone call. And it was from, uh, I think, the Seabird Committee or something like that. And I, then I woke up. I was like, okay, you better get up now. This is serious. Um, but I had no expectation. I was just happy that Candlewick decided to go ahead and publish the book because I wasn't sure what is the difference between illustration and fine artwork. I was kind of like learning what that's like. And um, after receiving, I think there were three stickers on that book that was like, wow, this couldn't possibly happen again. Like, just enjoy this moment. Great. And then Out of Wonder came. And it was kind of like, you're in the right place, doing the right thing for the right people, uh, it was confirmation. Um, in terms of how it's affected my career, it's, it's exactly what you said. I was a total unknown. And now uh, I've been places and I've said, oh, hi, my name is Aqua. And they're like, Aqua Holmes? I'm like, yeah. Um, but, you know, a little like startled that people actually know my name or know my work or have things to say about it. Um, so it's been wonderful for me. This is like a second childhood, a second career, and it arcs all the way back to making those books with my cousin when we were five and six years old. And so it's definitely full circle. Um, you know, it surprises people when I say that everything surprises me. Um, so I was surprised to get the call about the hate you give, um, getting an honor, because I guess for me, um, knowing how many curse words are in that book <laughs> how, and knowing that, you know, there were school districts that banned the book and all of this. I'm mm -hmm. like, there is no way they're going to put an esteemed Coretta Scott King sticker on this book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but they did. And I was, I was, I was amazed. I'm still surprised and just honored by it. So everything, when stuff like that happens still, I'm, I'm shocked. So I was shocked. But I remember too, the program, the award ceremony. Um, I'd been to the one the year before and it felt like going home. You know, it, it really did. It felt like going home. It felt like going home to church, you know, and it's such a beautiful ceremony. But the year that I did it, I have to admit, and I'm going to say it because he's here, um, when um, during the ceremony last year, um, when I looked at the order of, um, of the authors going up to give their speeches, I dreaded going behind Jason. Yes. Oh my God, no. I was like, are you kidding me? I will go first before I go after Jason. Like, we can, listen, next time we can swap book success and then you, you can do that. Um, 
You know what? <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> but it was still, it was such a memorable experience. And so to get that recognition from my folks, and I'm not going to tear up, but to get that from my folks when I've had so many people in the world say, this is too much, for my folks to say, this is good. Mm-hmm. That meant the world to me. So I was like, y'all can ban it everywhere. I got a CSK. Mm-hmm. I'm good. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so um, to follow on what Angie's saying, I, the first time I got an honor was for a book called I Hadn't Meant to Tell You This. And then the next time was for from the notebooks of Melanin's son, which I was <laughs> surprised about. And I remember I invited my mom, my grandmother, my brothers were there. And they had never come to any of my writing stuff. They, did, they just did not understand this world. And so to get my grandmother there, I was like, Grandmama, you know, um, it's this really fancy breakfast and, and it's $75 a plate and my publisher is paying for everyone to come. And so my grandmother comes in her Sunday best and, you know, the whole ceremony goes. Um, and, and afterwards she's like, well, Jackie, that food was good, but it wasn't worth no $75. So, and, and then, but it was interesting because this is uh, from the notebooks of Melanin's son is about uh, a boy whose mom comes out and, um, and he's grappling with her sexuality. And I swear, the woman presenting it, she's like, Jacqueline Woodson has written a book about a lesbian. And I, I felt like that word lasted the whole Sunday. And I'm like, you know, it was before fluid or queer or anything else, but I was like, oh my goodness, that word in this church lady's mouth. <laughs> so, but again, it was a, I was surprised that that was a book. And again, they said, we see you. And how many have been to the CSK ceremony? Okay, so about less than half um, get there because as it, it is it is a very spiritual, magical, healing, um, unifying morning. It re- and it really is about family in so many ways. I I've never felt like I have so many aunts and uncles as being in that room from from the from the all of the like the honor and the love of like, we, we love what you've done, you love the work that you've done, to like the way that your aunts and uncles were, and, and, and are you wearing that? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, that's what you're wearing. <laughs> All right then. Yeah, Javaka, <laughs> right. you Javaka, Javaka, what's that, last year, Javaka? Yeah. When he came with the flip-flops on? Yeah. <laughs> and them people in there was like, look at this boy here. Got, got flip-flops on <laughs> in the correct seat. The winner of the correct you can't, got King Award. You can't sing, lift every voice and sing with flip-flops. Isn't that in the rules? <laughs> But they also tell you, but they'll also, you have these people, these, these elders in your life that you haven't met yet, and they'll come up to you and they'll also say, we just, I just want to let you know I'm so proud of you. And there's something about it, right? I'm so proud of you, right? Not what you've done. I'm just proud of you. I'm proud of you. And they'll give you hugs, and they'll, their kids will come up. you got to take pictures with the babies. I mean, it's like a big old family reunion. Yeah, but I will tell you firsthand, your kids cannot be ill-behaved. So... <laughs> That's all I'm saying. <laughs> My kids have learned. Do you remember that one CSK breakfast where they beat Jackson? No. Really, <laughs> the blackest thing of ALA. Baby. You all should come, by the way. Yeah. 
I saw this video this week. It was it was you, Jacqueline. You were interviewing Jason in a bookstore in New York City, and you were talking to a bunch of kids, and they were giving you questions. And it was an amazing video to hear their reactions to your work. And I wanted to know if can all of you share very quickly before we have to wrap up some of the reactions that you've gotten from your readers to your books. Well, yeah. I mean, for me. Yeah, it's it's a little overwhelming. I mean, Ghost, of course, did what it did, long way down. Well, here's what I will say, very quick anecdote about that day. There was a young man in the audience who um, raised his hand. He was he couldn't have been 11, maybe, and he raised his hand and he said, uh, "Do you? Why don't you ever write white characters in your books?" Which for me felt like a really poignant question coming from an 11 year old, right? Because it's coming from an honest place. He, he really wanted to know, why don't you have any white characters in your book? And it's interesting because you could feel the adults in the room start to get a little like, how's he gonna answer the question? I have a rule. I'd answer the questions honestly because young people are human beings and they can handle honesty. And so my answer was very sort of like, listen, the reason that I choose uh, to, to very rarely, if ever, write white uh, white characters, specifically white children in my books, is because I think it's okay for black children to have uninterrupted time, right? I think it's okay for them to, to exist in an uninterrupted space, right? Because we never actually do, right? Except we always do, right? In these, in these interesting ways. And that young, and then I said, does it bother you that there are no white children in the books? And he said, of course not. Mm. And, th and that was the end of that. And, and I think about that all the time, that we don't give them enough credit. We just don't give them enough credit. And I've been, I've been, that's, that's been reinforced at this point hundreds of thousands of times yeah. when I'm talking to young people about these books. All of our books, by the way. Kids hate y'all books, they don't like y'all. Uh, <laughs> one that really stands out to me, it wasn't like an in-person interaction, but I got a letter from an eight-year-old boy who'd read The Hate You Give. And initially when I read the letter, when he said, I'm eight years old, I was, and I read your book, my initial reaction was, oh no. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I'm like, you're eight. But he was like, my mom thought I was ready for it. So I guess his mom made him put that in there as a disclaimer. Um, but he just, he was telling me how the book, um, one, it made him love reading. Two, it was one of the, he said, it was, it was great to see a family like his own. Three, it helped him understand police brutality a bit more, and his parents had the talk with him as they read the book together. And then he said, I heard that there are like people who don't like your book. Keep your head up, Angie, ignore the haters. And so, <laughs> and so that for me, that's why I do what I do, to know that there's a little eight-year-old black boy out there who read my book, and he's saying, ignore the haters, I'm like, I will do that for you, baby. You know, so that that for me, like I said, I was a little horrified, but you know, and then too, on the flip side, I recently met a 90-year-old black woman who loves the book, loves both of my books, and she keeps copies of them in her bag. And when she gets on like the public bus, if she sees kids in Jordans, she's like, young man, I have a book I think you'll enjoy. Because aren't those those Space Jam 11s? And so she's like a sneaker expert, and she uses sneakers to introduce the books to people. So to know that I got both of them, that means everything to me. Do you have, um, do you have that like blackish sneaker? set up? Well, I'm trying. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I just ordered like a big 
thing to keep my sneakers in and it arrived I while I was you. here. So I have a display case now for my sneakers. Oh my goodness. Don't ask how many I have. I love it. Because it's too many, but a side tip, you can write them off on your taxes. Oh really? <laughs> right? Because you put them in your book. Right, you put them in the book. Oh yeah. my so goodness. You're going to start seeing a lot more sneakers. <laughs> Yeah. Nice. It's, it's so, research. That's fabulous. Somewhere the IRS is listening to this. Right no, now. no, it's true. They're all up in your books. I'll vouch for you. So, my son's trying to get that. I'm like, your feet are still growing. Like, no. So my, uh, I think the story that stays with me is, um, um, as ambassador, my platform has been going into underserved schools and. Um, and juvenile detention centers. And I went into a juvenile detention center in Mississippi. Um, and, and it was predominantly white, it was all boys. It was predominantly white. They had an amazing library, an amazing librarian. And I'm talking to the boys and it's hard to talk to them be, uh, about my books because uh, there are a lot of triggers, right? If I talk about sexual abuse, if I talk about queerness, if I talk, you know, so, so, but we end up having this amazing conversation and they're writing and they're talking about their lives and, and we're bonding and it's fabulous. As I'm leaving, if every white boy in that place didn't throw up the white power sign, you know, my name's not Jacqueline Woodson, so I'm leaving and they throw up the white power sign and, and you know, and I said, you know, if that's all you have, I love you too. You know, because they're, they're in a juvenile detention center. This is all the power they have. They're incarcerated, they're young, they, there's so much they couldn't talk about. And it was this moment that made me really sad, of course, um, but it also made me see them in this whole other way of knowing that, um, that for them, this is power, right? This, this is their idea of power. And it wasn't something that was trying to be hurtful to me. You know, it was like, please see me, this is who we are. Um, but, it, but it definitely was exhausting and it definitely was imprinting. And I think going around the country, as we do and talking to so many different people of so many different economic classes and so many different races um, and so many different religions, like there are these moments where I don't know about y'all, but I'm just like, I wanna take a nap because it's hard out there in the world. And on that note, no, just, I want to take a nap. No, but, I mean, but part of what I think we, are, we all have experienced is the idea that these books, books for young people are tools, right? They're, they're very different than books for adults in which, first of all, books for young people are often uh, taken in communally. You have a whole family reading your book together. And then they're given to kids as tools for how to find themselves, how to make sense of their lives. If you're a young white kid in a jail in Mississippi, or if you're a young black kid um, growing up in Harlem, you know, Jason just reminded me, old Harlem or new Harlem, either one. Um, and Jason just reminded me, you know, the first book that I did on my own that had recognition from Curtis Scott King Committee was this book called Black Cat. Wasn't no people in it. It was a cat running around through Harlem and Brooklyn. What every kid who got it, though, saw was a tool for which to understand their locality, where they're from, and to say, where I'm from is good and interesting and beautiful. I got versions of Black Cat from 
Khartoum in Sudan, from, from cornfields in Nebraska, mm. from Puerto Rico, from kids who thought I wasn't specific enough about Brooklyn. You know, they're like, this is Black Cat in Clinton Hill. This is Clinton Hill Black Cat, as opposed to, you know, and, and, and all of our books ideally function not only as, as, as things that we can engage in one-on-one, -on -one, but as tools with, with which young people can imagine themselves, can find new ways of thinking about who they are. Like, you talk about the idea of the, the gap between this time when it was like lesbian to all of the young people that we know now who are like, see what I'm, I'm fluid within my fluidity of my fluidness. <laughs> and quite frankly, like your books are some of what made that happen because you wrote about young people who were finding themselves in between themselves. And, and, and that is what it means to make a tool. And every one of these books that these that my colleagues, that my friends, my family has made, this is what they do. And this is what the books are that we care about. This is the books that we promote. This is the books we want to make happen. Our tools to make the next generation have a vocabulary in, in which to exist. I was just saying that um, I, f I feel like my work as an illustrator is in partnership with the authors and the books that I've worked on have given me an opportunity to delve deeply into some historical figures that I thought I knew something about, but I really didn't know their story. I knew their glory, but I didn't know their story. And doing the books has given me a platform to talk to people about those stories. In addition to the illustrations, you really become an ambassador for the history of some unsung uh, heroes and heroines of our past. And I think that that's one of the things that I really enjoy about being a, a children's book illustrator. Um, in terms of what I've received back from children, I would say I've received so much love in the form of the questions they ask, the comments they make, the letters I receive, um, not just from children, but from librarians and teachers, that they're able to take these books and build lesson plans around them expand the worlds of the children that they're working with, um, or even expand their own awareness of um, the history of African Americans in this country. Um, I think somebody mentioned locality, geography. Well, I'm, I'm a city girl, I'm from Boston. So exploring the life of someone like Fannie Lou Hamer who grew up on a plantation uh, gives me a real uh, respect for how place affects who we are and who we become and to be able to share that with kids who have never seen a cotton field, never seen a piece of cotton or understand what goes into um, the harshness that went into that lifestyle. So I see these books as ambassadors for our past, for our history, and I'm just proud to be a part of that moving forward. We have unfortunately run out of time. Um, Jason, Christopher, Jacqueline, Angie, Egwa, thanks so much for joining us this morning. And thank you. Thanks for coming out bright and early.
That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decimal Podcast. I'd like to thank all the authors and artists for joining us for this very special live taping in D.C. at Annual. As well as I'd like to thank the representatives and publishers as well. Everyone came together and make this happen. They really appreciate it. So thank you very much. Join us next month for our international edition episode, where we turn our gaze overseas to look at innovative library programs that have won the ALA Presidential Citation Awards this year and more. So please join us next month. Until then, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Mm-hmm.